This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Hello, all you beautiful people. Welcome back. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Anna Lemke, professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. Dr. Lemke appeared on the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, and she's the author of the recently published New York and LA Times bestseller, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. This is going to be a fascinating conversation, so let's dive in. Dr. Anna Lemke, welcome to Champagne Problems. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. We are super excited to have you on. You've been on our radar from, from day one of, of the conception of this podcast. Your, your passion, your research, your expertise all speak directly to our mission. So pardon us while we pick your brain. <laughs> oh, gosh. No, I'm, uh, I'm happy. This is great awesome. that we're talking. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. You know, we're, we're very fascinated on the pleasure and pain topic. And I know that that's a big, big part of what you uh, present and talk about. Let's give our listeners a kind of an overview of the pleasure and pain piece that you speak on so frequently, and and obviously the dopamine and, and incorporated into that. Sure. So basically, what I describe is what I think are some of the most exciting findings in neuroscience in the past fifty to hundred years, which are first the discovery of dopamine as a human brain neurotransmitter in the nineteen fifties. Dopamine is um, not the only a neurotransmitter that's involved in the process of pleasure, reward, and motivation, but it's probably the most important one. And it is the final common pathway for all reinforcing drugs and behaviors. So in general, the reason that various drugs are uh, reinforcing for us is because they mimic um, a chemical our brain already makes. So mm. we, we make our own endogenous opioids. We make our own endogenous cannabinoids. Alcohol is very similar to GABA, our calming neurotransmitter, and also works by the endogenous uh, opioid system. So what happens is those, uh, those substances work in a myriad of different ways, but at the end of the day, what they do is they release dopamine in a particular circuit of the brain called the reward circuit. The more dopamine that's released and the faster that it's released, the more reinforcing the substance or behavior. But what happens in the brain, so first of all, we're also firing dopamine at a constant uh, baseline level. And what's key is uh, when that dopamine firing increases above baseline, that's when we get like that little like hit of like, ooh, that felt good. I want to do that again. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, when dopamine goes below base baseline firing, that's a dysphoric state, it's irritability, anxious, restless, mental preoccupation with trying to get more of whatever that thing was so that we can at least bring ourselves up to baseline, but preferably above baseline. And this wiring has been conserved over millions of years of evolution, unchanged across species, really important. What's key about uh, dopamine, the way that we process pleasure and pain in this reward circuit is that pleasure and pain work like opposite sides of the balance of a balance. So if you imagine a teeter-totter in a kid's playground, one side represents pleasure, the other side represents pain. And one of the overarching rules governing that balance is that it wants to remain level or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. And with every, any deviation from neutrality, our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance. 
Why? Because from an evolutionary perspective, we need to have a level balance so that we're sensitive to yeah. you know, external stimuli, either pleasurable or painful, so that we can immediately react to them, you know, uh. interpret them properly and react. But what has happened, uh, what, or what happens in addiction, is if we continually, uh, you know, first of all, I should say, the way that the brain restores homeostasis is by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So for example, uh, you know, for people who are reinforced by alcohol, they drink alcohol, it binds to GABA receptors, binds to endogenous opioid receptors, they get dopamine released in the reward pathway and the balance tilts to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened than our brain starts to downregulate dopamine transmission, GABA transmission, um, and our endogenous opioid system, not just to baseline levels, but actually below baseline levels. And that's called neuroadaptation. I like to imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the gremlins like it on the balance so they don't get off as soon as the balance is level. They stay on until the balance is tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that can be experienced as the come down, the after effect, the hangover, or even just that subtle moment of finishing one drink and feeling like I really wanna have another one. Now, if we wait long enough, and if there's enough brain plasticity, uh, then the gremlins hop off and homeostasis is restored and we go on with our day. But if we continue to consume our drug of choice repeatedly, what ends up happening is that initial dopamine response above baseline gets weaker and shorter, but that after response below baseline gets stronger and longer. In other words, over time, we accumulate more and more gremlins on the pain side of our balance until they're filling this whole room. And now we need to use our drug of choice, not to get high, but just to restore homeostasis and feel normal. And when we're not using, we're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, or craving. And this is the addicted brain. This is what happens when we compulsively overconsume and essentially change our hedonic or joy set point so that we're in a chronic dopamine deficit state. Wow. That helps visualize it. How does what you did just described kind of map on to somebody without you know, a, a diagnosable substance use disorder in terms of just their kind of everyday behaviors and things that they may do habitually that might not have a lot of negative consequences attached to it, but normal behaviors that release amounts of dopamine that we may not see as addictive, but could potentially consume a lot of our time. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you for asking that because really, you know, my, my book Dopamine Nation is in a sense, directed to that audience, not, yeah, not yeah. necessarily people who are have severe addiction, but sort of the average, you know, person who's kind of struggling with compulsive overconsumption, which frankly is all of us because we're right. living in a world that's constantly inviting us to indulge, it's titillating us, that's uh, you know, sending us alerts, you name it. Uh, you know, the key here is to appreciate that all drugs work on the same final common pathway. Um, that drugs come not just in the form of traditional drugs like cannabis and champagne, but we also have new drugs that didn't exist before. We have uh, uh, video games, online pornography, online shopping, social media. The devices themselves are reinforcing almost like, um, you know, latter day fires. This flickering screen uh, is in, in and of itself stimulates dopamine in the reward pathway and a kind of this illusion of 
being connected or getting things done when in fact we're not all that connected and we're not getting that much done, but the medium itself is reinforcing. And so there are, so the, the, you know, the conclusion is that most of us living in the modern wealthy nations are from essentially from dawn to dusk, titillating our brains with these, uh, you know, minor and major hits of dopamine throughout the day. And as a result, experiencing unhappiness, which of course, you know, our storytelling machines, which is our brain, um, are going to try to make sense of by identifying causal factors in, let's say, our job or our spouse or, you know, some, some experience we've had. But all of that may really be a red herring and the true causal factor may just be indeed the constant firing uh, of dopamine and these attempts to raise our pleasure level, to run away from pain, all of which is ultimately putting us into this dopamine deficit state, which is a, like a, you know, akin to a clinical depression. So I guess that's the way I think about it, that we're, we're, we're sort of all more vulnerable to anxiety, depression, and general misery precisely because we're surrounded by so many reinforcing drugs Chasing and behaviors. Yeah, right. All over right. the place. I remember I read right after I got sober, I, I went on a tear with a, uh, with a woman named Ann Wilson Schaefe and read a bunch of her books. And she wrote a book, I think, in the late 80s called When Society Becomes an Addict. I don't know if you're familiar with that. But no, it, it, but it sounds it interesting. Essentially described the kind of state that we're in right now Yeah. and, and kind of chasing that pleasure in every dimension possible. Right. Sociological terms. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I read your book and I've been following you for a while. And, and I just, I love your philosophy around addiction and the treating it in more of a holistic sense and looking at it on a spectrum. Can you kind of speak more about that in, in your kind of working definition of addiction? Yeah. I mean, so I think addiction broadly defined is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others, and even when we don't recognize that harm. So it's really important to acknowledge that when we're chasing dopamine, it's hard to see true cause and effect. And also the harms may be quite subtle and cumulative over time. Um, one definition that I really like is that addiction is the thing that we do that we lie about. And I think that's really true. Mm -hmm. And that probably, you know, what's happening in the brain when people become addicted is that the prefrontal cortex, which is this storytelling, future planning, future consequences, gray matter area of our brain sitting right behind our forehead, gets disconnected from the deeper limbic emotion uh, and reward processing areas. In other words, gets disconnected from the gremlins and the balance, um, such that the gremlins and the balance are, you know, sort of uh, driving the bus independent uh, of our prefrontal cortical ability to really assess uh, true consequences of that behavior. So, um, you know, I, I see addiction as a, a highly physiological problem that arises from um, exposure to reinforcing drugs and behaviors, which change the brain. But of course, addiction is also a biopsychosocial disease, which means that, you know, it's an interaction with the environment, but probably right now, the most important environmental piece of addiction is access. So simple access to reinforcing drugs and behaviors 
are one of the biggest risk factors. And I would contend the biggest risk factor in the modern world for developing addiction. And that's important because although things like, um, you know, early childhood experiences and lifetime traumas can, can contribute to the risk of addiction, I think overall we're making too much of that mm. in a kind of navel gazing way that's ultimately not all that productive. And that what instead we have to acknowledge and embrace is the powerful physiology and the changes in the brain that come about by the way that we have literally engineered these incredibly potent, nearly irresistible uh, drugs in the modern world. Good stuff. Daunting, but good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's always, it's like this. It's like, if if we can identify the true cause, then we're going to get much closer to the true solution. Right. But if we have a, if we're sort of identifying, yeah, if we're identifying a cause that's not really the cause, and this is sort of what I see a lot happening, you know, with sort of well-intentioned psychotherapists who are sort of, well, well, what's the trauma behind the addiction or, you know, what's the, and it's like, well, even if some of that is true, like, I don't really, that doesn't typically move people forward. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) And frankly, you know, I have this great patient who says, yeah, sometimes, you know, insight or, uh, or understanding is the booby prize. It's like, even if you have this aha moment, oh, I drink because of this thing that happened to me, you still have to stop drinking. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I had one of my clinical supervisors over the years always used to say that insight's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, right. It's really, and it's really anathema to do that because of course what happens in a lot of, and, and of course, I, and I don't believe insight's bullshit. I mean, insight is important, but yeah. I do believe that the best way to understand a biological system is to actually change a variable in that system. Hmm. And so to me, what we need to do is change the substance use or the behavior or change something biological about the system. And that then leads to insight rather than the other way around. We're like, well, let me first understand why I do, why, why I'm addicted to alcohol. And then I'll be able to stop it. It's like, no, you're addicted to alcohol because alcohol is addictive. Right. You know? Right. Right. Patrick and I are both in sobriety and, and, and actually have a background in the kind of 12 step model, which you know, obviously there's a lot of different sides of the fence on, on how, you know, that's spoken about inside of that, but I often am curious around, you know, what I was born with. And, and so a lot of that alludes to the disease model and, and well, I was born with this thing and, and that's what I can attribute it to. But often when I am asked about that, I explain it in a way, which I'm sure you can do much better, but just mine is coming from kind of personal experience of just how, it makes me feel. And I know that directly relates to how my body processes it. Right. Um, and so, you know, I've got a friend who can have a glass of wine and it's like, Ugh, I feel a little warm. And after two, I feel a little out of control. And then, and I'm like, I have one and I feel like God and I have two and I feel like <laughs> an even bigger God. And so there's something in there that I was yeah. born with that, you know, contributes. So yes. can you speak to that? Yeah. So this is a really important Point, and it covers a couple of different topics. First of all, let's just go back to the pleasure pain balance. Um, you know, w- when I drink a glass of alcohol, really all I feel is tired and I have a headache. So I don't, I don't, you know, it's or not you. reinforcing for me. 
Um, you know, whereas for you, clearly you get a nice big tilt to the side of pleasure. You get a big release of dopamine, highly reinforcing. So this gets to the concept of drug of choice, right? We're, we're, we're all wired. We all have the same basic motivational circuitry, but we're going to key on to different rewards. And from an evolutionary perspective, that makes sense. If you had like a tribe of people, you wouldn't want everybody like, you know, going for the same berry bush. You would want some people going for that berry and other people going for some bison and other people checking out, you know, where, where you can find eligible partners, things like that. Right. And that's true. That's still true in humans. And so again, it's, you know, every mental illness is going to be a, a stress vulnerability diathesis. And what that means is that you have to have the innate vulnerability to addiction to a particular substance and then you have to have the environment, you know, the stressor is the environmental availability of that substance. And when those two things come together, boom, you know, you get addiction. What I find really fascinating is that someone like you with this innate kind of propensity to find alcohol very reinforcing, you could have been born at any point, you know, in the last 2000 years and, you know, you would have had the vulnerability to alcohol, but you're, you're going to be much more vulnerable today, like the rest of us, because alcohol is so much more available and mm-hmm. it comes in so many different varieties and it's so much more potent. But interestingly, I, who don't have the genetic vulnerability to get addicted to alcohol, am also now vulnerable addiction because to addiction because my, my you know, potential addiction is actually attachment. Right. That I'm like a love, I'm a love and sex kind of person. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, as I talk about in the book, you know, I strangely in midlife, after having really no addiction propensities, I got addicted to romance novels. And of course it was like, you know, kind of silly and not obviously the same as life-threatening addiction that I see in my, my patient population, many, many of my patients, but nonetheless, a similar pattern. And what was the key? Well, I had incredible easy access through digital, um, you know, Amazon uh, to uh, ever more reinforcing and graphic and erotic uh, novels in this genre, without which I really don't think I would have gone down that path. Oh, yeah, I went, you know, my addiction started with with sex, self-pleasuring. It's at about seven years old. And the dopamine that was released during that at that age i mean it's it's so crazy looking back on it now and i didn't even really put that together until you know i had two or three years sober and really looked far back to as far back as i could to where that all started in terms yeah. of the biology and then i got addicted to basketball cards and now i see <laughs> how much that's correlated to gambling and then right by 13 i'm i got an opioid use disorder right oh um, my goodness can you speak to I mean, and I know that there's a lot of different factors and variables that go in here in terms of stimuli, but can you speak towards, you know, children and adolescents and maybe sprinkle in some preventative factors that we could, you know, that for our listeners that have young kids that so, well, first of all, I just want to say that, you know, what you describe is sort of this pattern of, of serial addictions. And I think that's important too, because that does highlight that some people really, really do probably have an increased propensity for addiction broadly, not just addiction to a particular substance. What I sort of think about mental illness broadly is that 
mental illness is always going to be this interaction between our biological makeup and the environment that we find ourselves in. And if you think about people who have this propensity to addiction, what they are is incredibly tenacious strivers who in a world of scarcity would have been like the most valuable people in a community because they just don't give up. The rest of us, it's like, oh, that, that's too much work. I'm not going to go get that thing anymore. But people with addiction, it's like, no, it's never too much work. Like my reward is always going to be worth it. But of course, those are the very people, you know, who are most vulnerable to the world that we live in now because everything is drugified. Uh, you know, whether it's, as you say, baseball cards or, or sex or, or what have you. So I think that, you know, when I think about prevention, I really do think about it from the perspective of we live in a dopamine overloaded world. We need to openly talk about that and acknowledge it with our kids. We need to say that device that you've got there, that thing, your smartphone in your hand, that's a drug. Um, And, you know, you need to be aware of that and think about what self-binding strategies you can put in place so that you can use it in moderation. And if you discover you're one of those people who can't use that in moderation, you need to you know, make some lifestyle changes. You, you, you can't live the way everybody else lives. Um, you know, and there's always grief with that. Like I always say to my patients, like it's, it's, oh. it's definitely worth mourning that you're not a person who can go to a party and you know, uh, just have a beer and go home. Like that, that is a bummer, but let's not pretend that it's the reality is different than that. And, you know, same thing I, you know, we've got four kids, the three older ones could all basically handle their digital devices when they eventually got them, which was much later than average. But our youngest son, I mean, you give him that smartphone, he cannot get off of that thing. And so there's a lot of open discussion, like, like, you know, clearly you have a brain problem here you know, with this particular drug, let's talk about it. You know, let's think about, you know, what we can do to help you live in a world where this drug is everywhere. You know, what are, how do you feel when you're using it? How do you feel afterwards? Let's try a dopamine fast and get you off of it. Let's talk about how that was for you, the pros and cons. Yeah, totally devastating. You couldn't be on, you know, um, you know, online playing video games with your friends. But on the other hand, wow, look at all the good things that happened when you weren't, you know, doing that. So I think these types of discussions are sort of a kind of a radical acceptance of what is combined with um, parental acknowledgement of, of individual differences and differences in vulnerability. Um, and then kind of, you know, reacting to that and, 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 you know, for example, our youngest, like we took away his phone, which he went out and got on his own when he was a freshman in high school. And, you know, a couple months into school, he was failing math. We, we took away the phone and he hasn't really gotten it back because he can't handle it. But our older kids, you know, they could. So that's hard, right? You got someone's like, well, why don't they? It's like, yeah, because your brain's a little bit different in good ways and in ways that are more challenging. I think this kind of like radical honesty with ourselves, with our kids, really important. I can definitely identify with that in terms of my kids. When you take away the thing, they grieve for a little bit, but then it's like you get them outside in the dirt and it's like the happiest they've ever been in their lives. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> One of the things that that really touched me in, in your book, you talked about radical honesty mm-hmm. in terms of how that may be the key to prefrontal cortex development. Um, 
and I may I may have just misspoken. No, you got but that perfect. Can you speak on that? Could that potentially be the, the key to us evolving yeah. as a species? Mm, I love it. Yeah. So the average adult tells one to two lies per day. Um, so we're, we're all lie a little bit. Typically we lie about little things to cover up small selfish acts like you know, why am I late? Oh, the traffic was terrible. That's not really why. It's because I took a couple extra minutes to read the paper and drink my coffee. But I'm not going to say, oh, sorry, I'm late. I wanted to take a few extra selfish moments this morning to finish my article. Right. (laughs) Um, But what I have observed and learned from my patients in recovery from very severe addictions is that they can't lie about anything. Once they start lying, they're going to relapse. And that is really fascinating to me. And I basically took that from my patients and just thought, I'm going to try this in my own life. I'm going to try to go through a whole day or a series of days and be very precise with my language and not lie, especially about the stuff that I lie about to make myself look better or just not, not you know, quite exactly right. Mm. And um, this is a really really fascinating thing because as I postulate in the book, I, because we're all reflexive liars, what happens when we have to intentionally set out to tell the truth is it takes brain energy to do that. It's work, it's effortful. And what it's probably doing is stimulating precortical function, which is essential for autobiographical narrative storytelling. And of course the stories that we tell about our lives are not just a way to organize past experience, but are key for future decision-making. They were the words become maps that lay out the roots for where we go in our lives. So this is really key. How we tell our stories is key. And what I've learned over many years seeing patients is that stories that adhere closest to reality or what is really true are healing stories. And stories that are sort of these like smudged, impressionistic <laughs> versions of reality, which we're all prone to are not healing stories. So for example, the story where I drink because all these people did all these horrible things to me, those people do not get better. People come and said, you know, I drink because, you know, uh, these things happen to me, but also I've, I've done X, Y, Z mistakes. Uh, I have, you know, these kinds of faults. I have a tendency to, to do these selfish types of things. Those are true stories. Those are true stories. And when people can tell those true stories, a whole wonderful landscape opens up for them. And it's very tangible. Like you can wake up and you can say, I have no idea what's going to happen today. I feel like crap. I don't know what to do, but you know what I can do today? I can try really hard not to lie. And it, it has a cumulative effect, which is incredibly powerful. I also believe in sort of the universal moral law. And so I think it taps into that. And then importantly, I think, you know, we often talk about human connection and intimacy as so central uh, uh, to overcoming addiction and living a meaningful life. But we never talk about exactly, well, how do we get more intimate? And the truth is that radical truth telling uh, is a way to promote true and real intimacy, which also in turn releases dopamine, which is a good kind of dopamine that makes us, uh, it's more enduring and makes us feel good. Oh my God. Fascinating. Dr. Lincoln, so the honesty piece and the dishonesty piece, and, and it's just something I've been working on fairly recently, but, and here's kind of what I've come up with. I'd love to just float it by you. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a uh, free, free session. Right? Yeah. Quick session. You know, it's fascinating because when you think of dishonesty, you, you, you often think of outward 
outward dishonesty. And often there's a stigma associated with that as if it's like intentional and you're just lying. And that's kind of what what we think about when we hear that word. And, and recently I've been doing a lot of work on the, the inner honesty. Ah. And, And when you look deep into that, it becomes less of a, I'm lying to myself or I'm, I'm, I'm doing this kind of deceitful act. It's more of almost a survival mechanism. It's a, it's an avoidance of pain. It's a Mm -hmm. way for me to not have to deal with things that, you know, hurt or scare me or make me sad or make me angry. And so there becomes this kind of lack of truth or, or dishonesty for better word, lack of better words is often that at the core of, of living you know, behaviorally dishonest or, or even outwardly lying to people? Is it, is it that inner dishonesty that it stems from? Yeah. I mean, so, so what's, what I find so interesting, so language really is this fascinating tool that we, we think we're having thoughts form first and then we're putting them into language. What we don't realize is that language actually creates the thoughts. There's a, so there's a fascinating interplay between the lies that we tell using language in our own brain and then the lies and then, you know, what we tell others and they're mutually reinforcing. So when we lie to ourselves, and by the way, I had a patient once who said to me that, oh, don't you know, Dr. Lemke, denial is an acronym. Each letter stands for something. And I said, well, what does denial stand for? Don't even know I am lying. I thought, oh, that's perfect. <laughs> so, but what happens when we have to tell somebody else, you know, what we're thinking, then we see them for the lies that, that they are. So, we're, so that's why I think that's where psychotherapy or even confiding in a friend or a journal can be very powerful. Um, if we can make sure that we're trying really hard to be honest to others, it sometimes forces us to be more honest to ourselves with ourselves. Um, you know, for example, I'll have many patients who will realize after they finally get into recovery that when they kept telling themselves, well, um, I'm going to stop drinking. I mean, they knew even in that moment that they were lying to themselves. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, I, I, like I, I'm saying that, but I, I'm not really going to stop drinking. <laughs> Give them that look. <laughs> yeah. But then the moment when they decide, okay, I'm not going to lie anymore. Okay. I'm going to keep drinking. I'm not going to stop drinking. Amazingly that then moved them to a place where they actually could contemplate stop drinking. Here's something else I find really fascinating that I've sort of been more attuned to this morning, this morning. And I think this comes up a lot too, because recovery is, you know, addiction is so associated with so much shame, right? Mm-hmm. And then we don't trust ourselves and we don't feel other people can trust us and we don't feel like we're grown-ups. But one of the interesting things about truth-telling is I often experience that when I tell the truth about something, it doesn't seem adequate. Like I, I almost think, well, people are probably going to think I'm lying. And I think that's part of the impulse to lie. Like we feel like the truth is not believable, which is totally crazy. (laughs) Like for example, this morning, I I told you that I I forgot my keys, which really never happens to me because I'm very scatterbrained. So I have to put them in the same place every time. Got here, shock, couldn't get in my office, no key. And so, and I had a meeting at eight. And so I emailed this person. I'm like, I'm so sorry. You know, I forgot my key. I left it at home. I can't make the meeting. I think we're probably going to have to reschedule. And I thought my first instinct was, this is the truth, but I, I wonder if this person's going to think I made it up. <laughs> got to be a better story than that. Really, there's got to be more than that. And so we, we embellish, you know, so we, it's like, totally. the, because we feel, and in a way, when we feel that the truth is not enough, what we're really, what we're really saying is we're not enough. Mm. You know, that on some deep level, on some deep core level, like we're not okay, we're not enough. But when we can say, you know, as lame as this sounds, I forgot my keys. It is the truth. And 
I just have to like sit with that. Like there's not a, a more, there's not a better story than that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Nothing more exciting no, than that, I promise. No, Dr. Lemke, why do you care? Oh my gosh, why do I care? Well, first of all, I am deeply moved by other people who are suffering and who try to do what they can to make their lives better. I, I have always been deeply moved by that. I can't really explain it. It's really on a feeling level. And I just think uh, probably it's just part of our shared humanity. I feel that I, I also in my own way find life very difficult. And so I think there's also the kinship there knowing that I'm not alone. Mm. Lovely. Thank you. So can you give us your kind of top three tips to live a more balanced life in this crazy world of indulgence? Yeah. So number one, abstain uh, for long enough to reset reward pathways so that you can look back and see true cause and effect, which is hard to do when we're chasing dopamine and also uh, reset homeostasis so that you can take joy in more modest pleasures. Uh, number time two, frame for that? Is that going to, yeah. Yeah, time frame. So honestly, 30 days is about average. Okay. Um, some people need longer, some people need less long, but if you don't do it the 30 days, you're just in the withdrawal phase and you never come out the other side. You never get to the place where you're resetting uh, dopamine firing. And that's really key to be able to sort of move forward. And then if you decide to, to reintegrate that substance or that behavior back into your life, keep the gremlins in mind. Um, such that, you know, if you're going to use an intoxicant, make sure you don't use too much or too often and leave enough time in between for the gremlins on the pain side to hop off so that you can restore homeostasis and um, press on the pain side because those gremlins are agnostic to what you, uh, what the initial stimulus is. And in fact, if we intentionally do things that are hard physically, mentally, emotionally, what we're doing is getting the gremlins to hop on the pleasure side of the balance and upregulate our own dopamine production and production mm. of other feel-good hormones. A little so cold for, water therapy. Yeah, yeah, cold Robbie's water a therapy. Cold plunger. <laughs> yep. Exercise. So, so first abstain, uh, you know, uh, and then if you're going to use, use an extreme moderation with time in between and press on the pain side, do things that are hard. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much. You're this was very a pleasure. welcome. Yeah. My pleasure too. Nice talking. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be in Orlando at the global exchange and oh, fun. So I'm run up and give you a big old. Hug. Oh yeah. Come <laughs> say hi. I, I really yeah, come appreciate say all the work you do. And thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you. And thank you for your service and helping others. Um, I think that's wonderful. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.